Okay, well, welcome everybody. So, now we know what's necessary to provoke an extra turnout of Bible study. We need a special guest. So I'm pleased to announce that next week we'll be joined by St. Augustine, who will be debating uh, the subject of free will with Pelagius. Um, following week, we've got a seminar on political theology from George Washington. Actually, it's not true. Um, it's not any old special guest. They've all come to see you. Pastor Shaw, it is wonderful to have you with us. Um, just for those of you who um, aren't members at All Saints and therefore might not have been in email communication, um, after a long and extensive and quite grueling uh, search and then interview process involving more hours than I care to mention of conversation and discussion and so on with myself and lots of other people, um, we finally moved to the point of a vote last Sunday um, concerning whether we should call Pastor Shaw to serve alongside Pastor Neil and myself here at All Saints, and the vote was a resounding yes, and so <laughs> he jumped on a plane two days later um, in exactly the kind of style with which we want you to continue, okay? Um, alacrity and energy, thank you very much. Um, and um, just look, scoping out places this week for uh, Mr. Shaw, uh, Pastor Shaw and uh, Mrs. Shaw, Brianne, his wife, and their six children to come and join us here mid-February, Lord willing, am I right? Yeah, so this man wastes no time, which is good, because there's quite a lot of work to do around here, and um, we need a bit of help with it. So it's going to be wonderful having you on the team, brother, and so glad you could make it here this evening. Um, let me lead us in prayer, and then we're going to read a little bit of Ecclesiastes chapter 9, and I've got a bit of a recap for you, and then we'll see where our conversation takes us, because there are some new things here as well. Um, just a, before I do that, a, a welcome also to those of you who are watching on the, the um, live stream. Uh, I hope that everything's clear. If it's not, please don't call me, because my phone's not switched on, but call Aaron Capone or um, Uriah Gill, and they'll be able to sort out whatever the problem is for you. Let's pray as we begin. Merciful Father, we are grateful to you for every good gift that flows from your hand. Uh, tonight, we do thank you for Pastor Shaw and Brianne and the kids and uh, for the gift that they are to us as a church. We pray that you'd uh, watch over Brianne and the children as they're without uh, husband and father for a few days while he's out here with us uh, looking for places where they can live. And we pray you'd speed their uh, journey to us, bring them to us safely, and we pray that... Uh, you would watch over him and all of us as we um, get to know one another better and uh, continue to seek to serve Christ faithfully here at All Saints. And in that vein, we turn now to uh, this evening and uh, we have your word open before us, for which we thank you and the privilege of uh, being blessed with one another's company and the gift of your spirit among us to animate these words. And we pray that he would indeed do that, that he'd breathe fresh life into these words spoken 3,000 years ago through your wise servant Solomon, that we may hear them and be shaped by them. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we're in Ecclesiastes chapter 9. I encourage you, if you wouldn't mind, please to turn there. Ecclesiastes 9, and I'm going to read the first 10 verses. This text contains one of my favourite verses in the whole Bible, um, Ecclesiastes 9.10a, the first half of verse 10, which we'll get to. And once we see it in its context, I trust it will come alive even more vividly for all of us. Let me read this, Ecclesiastes 9 from verse 1. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. 
Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and to him who does not sacrifices, sacrifice. As is the good, so is the sinner, and he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. And they have no more reward, for their memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in shale to which you are going. All right. I want to begin tonight uh, opening up the theme before us. I mean, the theme will be fairly obvious from this, but there is a particular emotional perspective on this cluster of themes that I think it will be helpful for us to orient ourselves to. If I recount an unusual Christmas celebration, I can't remember whether I've told you this story before. Have I told you about Christmas 1911? I don't think I've told you about Christmas 1911. In Antarctica, 25th of December 1911. A couple of months earlier, Captain Robert Scott and his four companions had set out on the final leg of their journey towards the South Pole. They'd aimed to be the first to get there. They were narrowly beaten, I think by about just a few weeks, by um, Amundsen and his company. They fought through blizzards. They climbed mountains 10,000 feet in height, dragging sledges weighing 200 pounds each. They endured temperatures that never rose above zero Fahrenheit and frequently went down as low as 20 or 25 below zero Fahrenheit or even colder. They suffered dehydration, snow blindness, frostbite, exhaustion and scurvy, which is what medieval sailors used to get when they didn't have any vitamin vitamin C. None of them survived the return journey, and in truth, they probably knew deep down in their hearts that that was the likely outcome. By the time they got to the position they were in on Christmas Day, 25th of December, 1911. And yet on Christmas Day, they stopped, they pitched their tents, they sat in one of the tents, and they celebrated Christmas. The menu, in case you're interested, it doesn't really sound like much to go on from our perspective, perhaps. 
they had a stew that was made from pony meat and biscuit crumbs. Uh, they made this sweet kind of paste that contained cocoa, raisins, sugar, and more biscuit crumbs. Apparently, biscuits crumble if you're trying to walk across Antarctica carrying a truckload of them. Uh, each of them had a two and a half square inch piece of plum pudding, four toffees, and four pieces of crystallized ginger. And as they awaited, what they probably suspected was their freezing lonely death, they celebrated the incarnation of Jesus. Which must have been slightly surreal, don't you think? I mean, you, the instinctive thing to do in circumstances when survival is at stake is to jettison everything that's kind of extraneous. You know, you... Um, Take only those things that you need and don't encumber yourself with extra activities, extra expenditure of energy, time-consuming things that could cost you your life. And yet, staring death in the face, they stopped what they were doing and they celebrated Christmas. And the wisest, no, second wisest man who's ever lived... King Solomon of Israel, would have said, yeah, you did exactly right. And the proof of it is right here in Ecclesiastes 9. And if you just look down at it again, you'll see why. It's, it's actually, a, in terms of the structure of the text and its main themes, it's fairly easy to work out what it's about. If you look at the headings in the English Standard Version, if you've got an ESV, or if you just look at the text briefly. The first six verses reflect on the inevitability of death. Death comes to all is the ESV heading. Um, it's the same for all. The same event happens to all. And it doesn't matter what kind of person you are, what kind of life you've lived. It's just this inevitable crunch at the end of the line. Verses 1 to 6. And then you get the most almighty crunch in the liturgical and literary gears when you hit verse 7, when Solomon says, right, off you go. Go and celebrate. Go and feast bread and wine. Go and enjoy life. Um, Dress yourself in luxurious garments. Oil on your head, which is a symbol of uh, rejoicing, uh, distinct from ashes on the head, which would be a symbol of mourning and impending or actual death. Enjoy life with your wife, whom you love all the days of your vain life. It's almost a note of irony, isn't it? It's like a kind of staring death in the face and laughing at it. And we'll actually come to that text, I think, is probably trying to point us to something beyond itself. We may look at that later. And then verse 10, just throw yourself headlong into everything that you're doing. Just, you know, you just, you live in California and you just got a call to serve at a church in Texas, so get on that plane and get over here like the next, well, two days later, right? It would have looked a little bit presumptuous if you'd arrived the next day. (laughs) Uh, We're very glad to see you. Um, That's the spirit of Solomon here. Can you see it? And and for those of you who've been here um, for the previous few weeks, I know one or two new faces here. It's wonderful to see you. You're most welcome. But this is a... 
cluster of themes that we have run into multiple times. But here, uh, various threads are pulled together and are pressed upon us with more than usual clarity and forcefulness. The inevitability of death and this startling, shocking injunction to rejoice in the face of it. And this, that's what I want to explore with you tonight. Uh, there are depths here which hopefully we'll, we'll plumb down to. Um, but the surface is really simple. We are doomed to die. We're made of dust. Uh, we're going to return to dust. And we are called to go around the world with an expression on our faces at least as joyful as what this man is now wearing. There we are. That's more like it. Just like, yeah, that's more like it. Just there. Ha, 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 ha. Come and get me. Or rather, no, don't just yet, because I've got a few more things to do. That's the spirit with which we are called to embrace this precious, crazy life that the Lord has given us. Um, so that's where we're going. Let me just, I want to take a half a step back to refresh my memory and maybe to refresh yours and to bring a few people who haven't been with us for the whole of the last few months up to speed with where we got to. Um, the best way to do that, I think, if, if we can just turn back to the very beginning of Ecclesiastes and I'll walk you briefly through the first couple of verses. Is that okay? And then what we'll do is we'll pause after that and we'll just make sure that everyone's okay with... We've got the big picture of the book, which I'm about to share with you. We've got the big picture of chapter 9, 1 to 10. Rejoice in the face of this impending death that stalks us all. And then we're going to jump into some of the detail and we'll see when we run out of time or whether we manage to get to the end. Okay, so Ecclesiastes 1, 1 and 2. Let me just read this. And this is like a summary of the whole book. You ready? So the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. All right, so... A few basic obvious things, right? It's um, the son of David is the author. The author is Solomon, who is, David had many sons, but this one is the son of David, Solomon, the son of David. And we know that for lots of obvious reason, reasons. Um, look, for example, at chapter 1, verse 12, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. Well, that narrows it down a bit. Not all of David's sons were kings. Um, if you look at chapter 1, verse 16, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. Well, that really does narrow it down. And you've got the same sort of thing later in chapter 2, verse 9. I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. So we're talking about Solomon. He's the author of uh, the book of, well, large parts of the book of Proverbs. He's the author of Ecclesiastes. He's the author of the Song of Solomon. Um, And he's preeminently known for two things, for his wisdom and for building the temple. And I suppose a third thing, for being the the one who brought peace to the land. Yeah, it's the the three things, actually, for his wisdom, for building the temple where the people of God worshipped, and for bringing peace. His name actually means peace. Shalom is the one Hebrew word that almost everybody knows. Well, that's related to the word Solomon. Shalom is Solomon in Hebrew. So he's the man of peace, brought peace to the land. And it makes you think, well, then why doesn't he just call himself Solomon? Because the name Solomon appears nowhere in the book. And remember, we had like the whole of, I think, our first Bible study. We were trying to explore and, and uncover all the different reasons why Solomon doesn't tell us his name. And there are lots of reasons. I mean, at one level, he doesn't tell us his name because he's echoing the message of the book itself. 
the meaning of life is hidden from us. Many of the reasons why things happen are hidden from us. And yet, we do know a little bit. But the more we dig, the more questions we end up with. And so there are unknown things in life. And so the author, Solomon, hides his name from us to mirror that reality. But he does call himself something. If you remember in verse 1, he calls himself the preacher. Now, who can remember the... the anybody remember the Hebrew name? Hebrew word that's translated preacher? <coughs> Go on. Anybody? Shout it out if you can remember. Yeah, Aaron. Kohelet. Kohelet. Yeah, very good. Says the man who's just written an essay for his college. Did you write it on Ecclesiastes? Yeah, yeah. Kohelet. Uh, the word Kohelet is literally the one who gathers the assembly. It comes from the verb kahal, which means to gather. The assembly of the people of God around Mount Sinai was called the kahal. Um, and Kohelet is like a substantive participle form of the verb, and it just means the one who does the gathering. And so that makes you think, okay, so why would he pick, of all the things he could call himself, he doesn't call himself the wise man, he doesn't call himself the teacher, he calls himself the gatherer of the assembly. And you may be thinking, perhaps it's highlighting that this wisdom that we're looking for will only be found when we're gathered together. Have you ever had that experience where you've been like in a Bible study and you're reading the Bible and, I don't know, maybe this one, hopefully, Lord, please, this one, where you come away thinking, there's so much in this that I never would have seen if I'd been on my own. And yet, when we gather together, we see things and we learn from each other things that we wouldn't otherwise have learned. And maybe one of the wise things that we should learn from the wise king is that we need each other, otherwise we're not going to understand the world. And even sometimes your four-year-old kid can say something and you think, actually, that's a really good point. <laughs> you ever happened? Yeah, all the time. And, and, you, and yeah, we, we learn from each other. So we gather the assembly in order to learn from the wisdom of others. In Solomon's life, the... The verb kahal is only used once, or in one context. It's used, um, actually it's used a number of times, but it's all in the same context. It's when he gathers the people for the dedication of the temple. So that's a really striking resonance, because what you're thinking then is, for Solomon, to kahal the people means to bring them to the place of the Lord's holy presence, to bring them to where they can worship to bring them to a place where they can be cleansed and purified and start to live lives that honor the Lord and actually approach him in prayer through sacrifice. So maybe, then, this is the daily life correlate of that sanctuary worship. I actually mentioned this on Sunday. Worship in Scripture has a twofold valence. It relates, on the one hand, to drawing near to the Lord in prayer or in corporate worship. It also refers, like in Romans 12, to our daily lives. You know, the, uh, offer your bodies as living sacrifices is your spiritual worship. It's, your, it's not even spiritual. That text says logikos, logical. It's just the, the rational way to live. So maybe what we're doing here is this is the flip side. We draw near to God to worship him. And then we go out into this confusing, perplexing world, and ah, what do we need to take with us? Well, how about Ecclesiastes? Because it's this gritty, realistic book. So he's the one who gathers the community so that he can send them out into the world. Um, I, I wonder, I mean, this is just one of the about four or five other things that you guys came up with a few months ago. Um, 
the more I think about it, the more I wonder whether he is also drawing on the background of the curse of Babel. Remember the Tower of Babel? What, what did God do to the people at the Tower of Babel? He did a couple of things. Yes, yeah, Samuel? Well, he muddled their language. Yeah, he muddled their language. And then what else did he do? Scattered them abroad. Yeah, very good. He scattered them abroad. And various portions of Scripture have been seen historically as kind of the antidote to the scattering of Babel. One of them is, oh, come on, where, where are the tongues all united and everyone's together? Remember? Everyone can understand each other's language again. Yeah, Pentecost, right? Pentecost is the, rever- the uh, reversal of Babel, when the Spirit is poured out and unites the church in Christ. Well, here, perhaps we've got like a mini reversal of Babel. So all this confusion, yeah, because nobody understands anything. Nobody can understand each other, all the confused languages. We've tried to get to God by our own strength, and we've failed, and we've been cursed and scattered, and now none of us understand anything at all. Well, what he's doing here is he's gathering everyone together, first in First Kings Gather them to the Lord, assemble together at his holy sanctuary. And now, as a united people, learning from each other, we're ready to go out into the world so that we can actually live wise lives with the actual gritty realities of life. Because above all things, Ecclesiastes refuses to hide from us the gritty realities of life. I actually love giving this book to people who aren't Christians. I I was talking to a young man a year or more ago who's not a believer, well, wasn't at the time, he is now. Um, and he said, what should I read? I said, you should read Ecclesiastes. And it's partly because I really like the book, but it's also because I wanted him to know that the Bible isn't full of naive, Pollyannish, um, the kind of things that he probably heard the Bible was full of. The Bible is a real book about real life. And if, if you ever find life frustrating, and then the Bible says, yeah, life is frustrating, you think, oh, maybe, maybe this God understands me. A bit better. And so um, I think that can be helpful for us. So, um, all right. Now, I'm talking a lot about this theme of, um, where were we, uh, of confusion and frustration. Now, one, one final point about that. Um, what is the one thing that lies behind all that frustration? God didn't make a frustrating world. God made a good world. Remember that. We'll come back to it later. Well, if you look at the occurrences of the name Kohelet in the book, there are how many? Who remembers this? There's a really cool little pattern where the name Kohelet appears in the book. Who can remember? Oh, I'm glad we're doing this recap. Oh, Jack, yeah. Seven, yeah, of course, obviously, right? And do you remember, there's three at the beginning. Do you remember where the other four are? Three at the beginning. Almost. Three at the beginning, three at the end. And where's the other one? In the middle, obviously. Where's the the middle occurrence of the name Kohelet? It's in chapter 7. Just turn with me and we'll we'll have a quick look at that. In chapter 7, verse 27. Behold, look, everybody. Behold is like an interjection. It also means it's an imperative meaning. Look at this. Hey, everybody, look around you. This is what I found, says the preacher. Oh, this is probably going to be a significant moment then because he's found something. And what's the thing that he's found at the climax of that passage? Verse 29. God made man upright, but they've sought out many schemes, many devices. So what accounts for the frustration of the world that the preacher, Kohelet, sees? It's this painful and frustrating tension between the fact that the world is beautiful and good and uh, to be enjoyed, because God made man upright. Everything was made good. 
but we have gone around and sought out many schemes. We have twisted the way of things. It's a reference to Adam's sin and the fall and the resulting curse on all people. So we're, we're living in this world which is both beautiful and broken and cursed with death and pain and sin and frustration. And we're therefore called to not just get lost in the pain and frustration, but to rejoice in that which is good. So that's the tension and the mystery at the heart of Ecclesiastes. Um, And just looking at verse 2, back in chapter 1, verse 2, and this is um, Kohelet's own summary of that frustration. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. And we talked about the translation of this word at some length, didn't we? It's the Hebrew word. What's the Hebrew word translated vanity? Hevel. Hevel. Yeah, you all remember that. It's hard to forget that one, isn't it? Hevel, it, it means literally mist or vapor. Uh, it's sometimes translated uh, meaninglessness or emptiness or futility. And the problem is none of those things really capture it because it's a, it's a very concrete image. I mean, obviously, it's mist is not very concrete. Um, it, but it's a, it's, a, it's a physical thing. And sometimes we make a mistake by trying to turn imagery into abstractions. What does mist mean? Well, it doesn't really mean any one thing. It means lots of things. And so the illustration that always appeals to me, and which I actually saw a version of here in Fort Worth, but the the lake in the park near our home in London where we moved from, and I saw this at Lake Worth one morning when I drove past it on the 820 on the way to work, but frequently in the winter in England it will be covered in this shroud of mist about four or five feet thick and it's blowing this way and that and it's and it's unbelievably beautiful but highly unpredictable and it's like curls of mist it's like kind of special effects and you could never predict which way it's going to go next and you could just stand there and watch it for a few minutes and then as the sun rose and it warmed up ever so slightly because it's England um, eventually after a few minutes it all just disappear life is like that it is like mist. Can't, can't predict it. Which way is it going to go next? The slightest puff of wind will make it go this way or that. It's really staggeringly beautiful. I could watch it all day, but it's not there all day because it's just gone. And life is like that as well. It just disappears. And so what should you do in the face of that? And that's bringing us now to um, uh, where we are in, in chapter 9. And another illustration, pardon me with all these stories, but... Um, I think especially when we're trying to get to grips with um, life in its complexity, sometimes these stories are kind of helpful ways of doing it. I'm reminded of a photograph that Nicole and I took of our three children on the beach at Calais in northern France where they had been building sandcastles um, at low tide while we were waiting for our ferry home from one of our holidays on the continent. And they were covered like in sand and salty, gunky muckiness. And they'd been building these sandcastles for a couple of hours. I was like, oh, how are we ever get this filth off them? Um, but they were so happy. And they built these really quite pitiful sandcastles because they're like three years old or something. Anyway, but they were so proud of this. And in eight hours' time, the tide was going to come in. And then it would go out again, and it would all be gone, never to be seen again. It would be a little smudgy bump on the sand that's it and you might think what a waste of time 
What a waste of time building all those sandcastles and getting mucky like that when the sandcastles are all going to be gone and you're just going to end up mucky and dirty. You need to be hosed off in cold water by your frustrated father when he gets you home. No. What a beautiful thing to do. And their faces just shine with the excitement of a one and a three and a five-year-old, or however old they are, I can't remember, Nicole would remember, who've just had the most wonderful time. And that's really the... I guess that's the, the... That's how we are called to embrace much of our lives. There are times for mourning, chapter 3. There's a time for mourning. There's a time for tears. There's a time for silence and sorrow. But for much of our lives, we are actually called to rejoice and thank God for the fleeting lives that he's given us. And that brings us right into chapter 9, doesn't it? Because we're staring death in the face. In 100 years, unless you know, maybe some of the younger ones have extremely healthy diets and extremely good genes, we'll all be gone. And, yeah, there we all are. We're called to rejoice. Now, all of you probably are thinking, there, there's a little niggling question in the back of my mind about the resurrection. Can, can we talk about the resurrection at some point? The answer is absolutely yes. And I, um, I think um, this passage is probably in, intended to point us somewhat towards that as well with one of the, the phrases that towards the end of it. Hopefully we'll get to that today. Um, let me pause for just a second because we've got... I've talked an awful lot already. You might have some questions. You all happy so far? Big picture of the book? And the big picture of chapter 9, verses 1 to 10? All happy? Any, any questions or comments so far? Any thoughts you want to throw into the pot? Don't be shy. I know some of our normal early contributors are not here tonight because they're recovering from illness. So that just opens the stage up for some new stars to shine among us. Who's going to take the stage? There we are. Look, I knew somebody would ever live here. Go ahead. Would you mind quickly going through where the seven Kohelas are? Yeah, sure. Yeah, so um, the first three are in uh, chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 12, and now you're asking, hold on, let me see if I've written them down. I might have done, that would have been useful, and this would save time. Um, chapter 1, verse 2. That's right, chapter 1, verse 2, thank you. Yeah, well done. <laughs> I'm glad somebody's paying attention. The, the last three are in chapter 12, verses 8, 9, and 10. And, you know, all of Scripture is artfully constructed and and none of these, these things are not accidental. So you've got three Kohelets at the beginning, three Kohelets at the end, and then one right in the middle. This is what I found, says Kohelet. And okay, this, this must be the answer. And the answer is, this is the pain of living in a fallen world, 727, right in the middle of the book. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, Aaron. Uh, question. Um, in verse 9, we already touched on the main life of it, and maybe the preacher is Yeah, so um, that's a very good point. So uh, just at the end of verse 9, 
The preacher uses the phrase under the sun. That is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Um, And so maybe that's a hint that we're talking about in this age before the resurrection. I think probably that's right, yeah. I think that's right. I also think that the um, 1 Corinthians 15, 58, um, your labor is not in vain. That's the end of the resurrection chapter. So there is a resurrection answer to Ecclesiastes, but it doesn't, und- it doesn't undo Ecclesiastes. What it does is it one-ups Ecclesiastes. It says to Ecclesiastes, yeah, you're right. This life is exactly how you say it is. It's good and wonderful and glorious and tremendously frustrating. And death really does feel like an end and, and it's experienced as a painful intrusion into our lives. And all this will be resurrected afresh. That's the glory of the, the uh, new covenant hope, which 1 Corinthians 15 is all about. And that, so that 1 Corinthians 15, 58 is the climax of that. We all get to that, I hope, today. Yeah, thank you. Good. And I should say, anybody at home, if you're watching through that little tiny porthole right there, then um, if you've got questions, then ping them our way. And our two uh, mighty men of valor over there with the laptops will feed them into us. All right. Any other comments or questions so far? Some of this is familiar, I know, right? But some of it won't be to some of you. All happy? Should we carry on? All right, so let's just jump in. Um, I, I don't want to spend... Well, okay, we could spend a long time in the first six verses. Part of me doesn't want to, just for emotional reasons. I don't think I have the energy. Um, but let's just, let's just look at it for a, briefly and just try and get a sense of how it says what it says. Just try and feel the poetic and theological weight of how it is describing the inevitability of death. Just look with me. All this I laid to heart, examining it all. That's probably a reference to, firstly, the whole book so far, but also perhaps to chapter 8, verses 14 and 15, because it seems that those two verses are expounded and expanded in these 10 verses. Verse 14 of chapter 8. There are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked and vice versa. Well, that's picked up in verses 1 to 3, certainly. Chapter 8, verse 15. So I commend joy. Yeah? That looks like chapter 9, verses 7 to 10. So can you see it's a funny kind of literary structure, but what's happening is those two shorter texts are being expanded slightly. And so maybe... Kohelet is looking back and saying, this I laid to heart, examining it all. And then he expands on it. And he expands in this way. The righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Everything's in the hands of God. And it doesn't really matter what kind of life you've lived, at least in terms of this outcome. Whether it's love or hate, man doesn't know. Both are before him. I'm not sure what that means, actually. Um, Puzzled over that for a while. But certainly verse 2 is clearly talking about death. It is the same for all. The same event happens to the righteous and the wicked. Notice that um, the preacher steps back from talking about it as death. He now wants to say the same thing, the same event. Have you noticed sometimes there is that reticence among people to say the word? Uh, he's passed away. Uh, he's, he's some other euphemism. He's no longer with us. 
He's crossed over to the other. You know, and, and there are some, some which are more whimsical than others, aren't there? But, but, and, and I want to say at one level, um, I think I understand that. Death is such an obscene intrusion into the world that naming it seems to be dignifying it with a kind of presence that it doesn't deserve. When Jesus is at the grave of Lazarus, um, the, the, the term used to describe his reaction is used in other Greek texts to, to describe the snorting of an angry horse. And it's Texas. Some of you know what an angry horse sounds like. Like, you know, or, or something like that. Or something not at all like that, but, but that you could imagine better than I can. You know, that, that kind of, the sort of sound that if you're me and you come near it and it makes that noise, you then move away from it because you don't want to end up with two broken legs because it kicks you or something. That, and now that, we, that sounds kind of funny to us, a man making that kind of noise. But it suggests the intensity of Jesus' rage. How dare this thing intrude into my friend's life? Lazarus is my friend. I'm going to get him back. And so he does. Can you see? And, And I think there's something of that intensity, perhaps, in... You know, the same event happens to them all. Solomon is alluding to it. And he says the same thing again later. To the righteous and the wicked, the good and the evil, the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and to him who does not sacrifice, as is the good, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. There's, there's an evil that's done under the sun. And again, he won't say the word death. He will later. The same event happens to them all. You see, it's like there's just nothing you can do. And so you might conclude, if there's nothing you can do, it doesn't matter what you do. Because we tend to be quite... We're all closet utilitarians. You know what I mean? Um, Utilitarian in the sense of uh, basing our decisions purely on the perceived good of the outcomes. What's the benefit that, that will accrue to me? What's the point of that then? In which case, whoever would paint a watercolour or who would ever go for a walk up a mountain when it's much more convenient just to walk up and down your stairs lots of times? Get the same exercise. Or whoever would do any number of other things that seem to us like pointless things. Why would you ever buy nice crockery when you can buy a cheap little mug from somewhere? Why would you make nice crockery like some of you do? Pardon me. Why would you spend all Saturday afternoon on a lathe producing wooden bowls? My wife wants to know. Um, when you can buy a perfectly good one for 99 cents at the dollar store. Well, because utilitarianism is wrong. Right? The, but how is it wrong? How is it wrong? It's wrong in this sense that we ought not to be uh, dictated to by pure uh, minimalist functional utility. And this is where we're going to go in verse 7 and following. Um, Verse 3 continues, The hearts of the children of man are full of evil, which is pretty cynical, I suppose. And then you read 1 Kings and you think, yeah, yeah, I can understand why you think that, Solomon. I've been reading 2 Samuel. Good grief. 
I mean, it's like one betrayal after another. I can't figure out whose side Joab is on. Does anybody know? <laughs> I'm pretty sure David didn't know. And what's his name? Zeba. Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth. That guy is Jonathan's son's servant. Um, God, well, whose side is he on? I bet he forgets after a while. You know, it's one of the problems with lying, isn't it? You can't remember who you've told the truth to and who you've t- you can't remember what you've said. It's much easier to tell the truth. Anyway, but the heart of the children of men is full of evil all the time while they live, and then they go and die. Um, so all of this is pointing to the inevitability of this demise. And then, and then verses 4 to 6, um, I guess you could simplify this by saying it's about the... Not so much the inevitability of death, but how bad death is. A, a, a living dog is better than a dead lion. Um, lions are pretty impressive, but a dead one isn't up for much. Um, so you have this deeply, deeply pessimistic outlook on life in the first six verses. So now, let me pause there before we look at verse 7 onwards. Any comments about that? Any thoughts about it? Does it prompt any other questions in your minds? Maybe it prompts lots of questions. But Yeah, Sam? Well, this was back to the utilitarianist shebang. Wouldn't you say that um, that is in, in and of itself a form of idolatry? Yeah, it is a form of idolatry in the sense that it's uh, absolutizing your perception of the consequences. Exactly, yeah. And like any idol, it will kill you. We talked about that on Sunday. We might get to that as well later. Yeah, thank you. So, yeah. You all want to move on from verse 6, don't you? Because you want to figure out verse 7. It's much more fun. You get this massive crunch in the gears. Can you see? Now, I'm going to read verses 7 to 10. I want you to count the instructions for me. It's quite tricky. I'll read it. Count the instructions. See if we all get to the same number. Go. Eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he's given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil, at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. Literally, with your muchness. It's the same word that's used... um, Uh, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your might. For there is no thought, work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in shale to which you're going. How many instructions? You got seven. Did somebody get ten? You got nine. I'd love to see where the nine or ten come from. Obviously, you got five. How many did you get, Jack? Jack normally gets the right answer. You got five. Oh, my word, now we're in trouble. Six. Oh, well, that didn't work, did it? Never worked with children or animals. Um, let, me tell you what, let me tell you what I and all the commentators I've read think. Sorry to kind of raise you that one. Um, go. Eat. Drink. Let your garments be white. Let no oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with your wife. Do it. Seven. Right. Samuel was right. I, now, okay, I, I think, like I said, it's not easy to spot, and partly it's because in, in English some of the sentences are a bit tangled up. 
<laughs> this, this is going to sound bad, but it is more obvious in the Hebrew, sorry. Um, now, come on, let's start teasing these apart. Before we look at the individual ones, seven imperatives. Come on, where have you seen this before? Or just seven of anything. Creation Week. Thank you, Nan. I mean, Evelyn. <laughs> Sorry, let the hero understand. Um, um, <laughs> uh, just because Nan normally answers the questions first when she's here. Um, seven, Creation Week. So, wouldn't it be interesting if there was some correspondence between these and the days of creation? Can you see any correspondence at all between these seven instructions and the six days of creation plus one day of rest. Can you see anything? Just looking at it. Go, eat, drink, white garments, oil on your head, enjoy life with a wife whom you love all the days of your vain life, work. Go on. Well, I got an idea for the first one, go. Yeah? Like, in correlation with the... um if we're comparing this with creation, go, think of it almost like let there be life. Yeah, let there be be life. Go and do it. Yeah, so the first one, go, almost by its non-specificity, maybe is a little bit like the very beginning of creation. I don't know, I can't, I struggle. I feel like I'm I'm scratching around there. Let me tell you where I think there's, there's... Probably one correspondence, and certainly another one. I think there are two. The sixth instruction, which one's that? Enjoy life with whom? Right. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love. Why would that be the sixth instruction? <gasps> Cora just realized. Why is that the sixth, Cora? Because Eve was created on the sixth day, along with Adam. Adam and Eve were created on the sixth day. The sixth day is the creation of people day. So maybe, just maybe, what we're seeing here, in the face of that which has broken creation, the sin of Adam and Eve, that one way to fulfill the purpose of creation and particularly the purpose of humanness in creation is this enjoy life with the wife whom you love now it wouldn't be the only way it's not the only thing the text says but maybe there's something there and in a, in a few minutes we'll see more creation echoes i think there is something else though in the seventh one but, and, but this is well maybe it's easier to spot maybe it's harder to spot why, why would the seventh instruction be seventh? Whatever your... I'll, I'll translate it in a way that brings out the connection with Genesis 1. Uh, whatever your hand finds to work, work at it with all your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in shale to which you're going. Work, 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 three times. Why is that the seventh one? That was nearly a hand up, wasn't it, Mr. Maxwell? <laughs> when you become a member, by the way, there's no opting out. Okay, but, but for now, we'll let you just... Why is that the seventh instruction? Work, work, work. Yeah, Aaron. It seems like it's almost the reverse of what you think it would be. Right, it's the reverse of what you think it would be. Why? 
because you're supposed to be resting on the Sabbath. Think back to Genesis 1 and 2. Everything's created by the end of the sixth day. People talk about, do you believe in seven-day creation, seven days of creation? It's like, no, there are six days of creation. Sorry, I certainly believe in those. (laughs) Um, The seventh day is not a day of creation at all. It's a day of not doing creation. It's a day of resting. And here, Solomon has made his Sabbath instruction an instruction about work. Work, 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 three times. Whatever your hand finds to work, work at it with all your might because there's no work in Sheol. So now you need to tell me why. Why, why, why would Solomon do that? Maybe death is like a rest. Is... I need to make sure I'm hearing. Right, right. He's trying to show that resurrection is the rest. I think that's profoundly true. And it's, you're almost skipping three or four steps past how Solomon would have thought of it, I think. Notice what he... Well, no, just pause one second. Anybody else got any ideas? You're right, um, uh, and we're going to get exactly to there. Um, any other thoughts? I, I, somebody's got their hand up. Oh, yeah, Aaron. So. Right. At the end of the long day, when you work, 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 right. that's final rest is rewarding, and that's how it's supposed to be designed to be. Right, yes. So when you work, 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 the, the, the final rest that you're anticipating, which Sophia is alluding to, the rest of the resurrection, is that much better? You know how, how good it feels at the end of the day when you've been out, like in the yard, clearing out weeds and stuff for eight hours or ten hours, or putting up fence panels or something, and you just feel like every muscle in your body is aching, plus a bunch more you didn't realise you had. Yeah, that, that kind of rest feels so good after you're completely exhausted. Um, I think both of you are, are heading in exactly the right direction. Sophia especially, actually. Let, let me Imagine putting it like this. Imagine if Solomon had said that had made this seventh instruction, an instruction about rest, that would have given us a sense of completion, wouldn't it? You know what I mean? It would have felt like six days of do things, do this, go, eat, drink, all on your head, white white garments, enjoy life, and rest, right? You're like, oh yeah, this is the way the world is supposed to be. There's a kind of completion to it all. The effect of making it The opposite, like Aaron said, is to highlight that Solomon knows he's not there yet. I think this is one of those moments where you realize Solomon knows that the picture he's giving us is completely true and not the whole story. And I've alluded to this already even earlier today. But in verse 9... I I just cannot bear to read this without also thinking of the 
the scriptural theme that makes it not true. Just look at verse 9. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun. Is your life vain? Who wants to say yes? Because it says so here. Who wants to say kind of no? Yeah. Who wants to say sort of yes and no? Who wishes that Pastor Jeffrey wouldn't ask questions like this and we could just move on and he'd just tell us the answer? Well, I don't know what the rest of you are thinking. I, th- I think it's, this is one of those moments where you, you see the, the tension that the progress of God's plan introduces into Scripture. You see in what Solomon writes here that he knows there's something else coming but he's not quite sure what it is. And you only see that when you look back at this from, just turn with me now to 1 Corinthians 15. And you've got to have Ecclesiastes really firmly in your head when you read this. That seventh instruction is, it's the hyperactivist's charter, Remember? Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Work at it, always intensity, up first thing in the morning. Got a call on Sunday, book your flights on Monday, get here on Wednesday, find a house on Thursday, go home, bring the family out next week, you'll be preaching in three weeks' time. That's, that's the kind of, that's, that's the way Solomon wants us to live. Because it's all vain. You're like, Really? Because 1 Corinthians 58 says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. In other words, it's the same theme as in Ecclesiastes, abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor, work, all the vocabulary is the same, except that it's not in vain. Can you see there's this huge formal dissonance? This is a technical phrase for it between these two parts of scripture. Solomon has been telling us for now eight and a half chapters, and he's got another three and a half to go. He's been telling us it's vanity, 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 vain, 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 hevel, mist, here today, gone tomorrow. It's all wonderful, isn't it, while it lasts, but isn't it frustrating? And then you're all going to die because it's vain, 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 vain. And then Paul's like, no, it's not in vain. Can you... And if Solomon had given them rest, they wouldn't have known to look for another Sabbath day. Remember the logic of the book of Hebrews? I'm asking you to think really hard now. If Joshua had, if Moses had given them rest, if Joshua had given them rest, they wouldn't have known to look for another Sabbath day. That's the logic of Hebrews. They, there's a there's a, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God because they didn't attain Sabbath back in the land. Here you've got the same thing. Solomon says, this is what life is like, but then he's telegraphing that this isn't the end. I just don't know what is going to be the end because there's no rest here. There's no rest in the seventh instruction of Ecclesiastes 9 because it's still vain. When will the day come when it's not in vain? The answer is the day of resurrection. When everything that we do, everything you've ever done, all that you've ever become, will be recaptured 
harvested and will become the seed from which the resurrection grows. It's not. It is the end. Death is the end. But it's not the end. That's the Christian hope, isn't it? Can you, do you, can you breathe a bit more easily now? Like death is this terrible, traumatic intrusion into life that brings it to an end, but it's not the end. Finally, he said it. It's not the end. And so it's not in vain. You with me? At least I think that's how we should pull these strands together. Let me pause a second, because there's some hands going up. Yeah, Aaron. And then come back over here if you've got any questions. Yeah, Aaron. Yeah. Right. So if this was, if there had been no sin, verse 7 to 10 will stand and it would point to their need for, um, I don't know. I mean, it's certainly true, I think, that if man hadn't sinned, Christ would still have come. And we have to talk about that another time because that's going to be a, that'll be a long, there's a big thick book about it on my bookshelf that I read once and I thought I understood, probably didn't. But it's, um, that's been a debate now and then in the history of the church. But I think the answer to that is, is yes. And so in some sense, yeah, could this be a portrait of what that would have looked like? I don't know. Yeah. But it's certainly true that um, Adam would have had work to do. He was given work to do in Genesis 1 before the fall. I don't know whether you'd describe it as vain work, though. So. Any other questions, comments so far? It feels to me like there's a lot of tangled different things which I'm asking you to carry around in your head at once. Evelyn. Do you have any more thoughts about the work that you did three times in verse 10? One of them, like the third one, is a different word, technically, right? Yeah, in your English translations. Yeah, do, do work. Yeah, it's the same, same word in Hebrew. It's, so the verb asah and its cognate nouns can be translated to do or to work. And when you make a Bible translation, you have to compromise. You can't be literal. There's no such thing as a literal Bible translation. Whatever anybody says, it's just not possible. Because words don't work in the same way in different languages. The the semantic ranges don't overlap exactly. So there's no one-to-one correspondence between words. So, um, yeah, that's... In fact, there's... there's, um, you mentioned the threefold thing, work, work, work. Um, well, what's the threefold word in verse 9? This is the clue that it really is about Eve on day 6. What's the threefold word in verse 9? Life. What does Eve name, Eve's name mean? Life. Yeah. She'll be called Eve because she'll become the mother of all the living. Because... Eve in Hebrew means something a little bit like life or life giver. So life, life, life. Enjoy life with the wife. Oh, this is going to become a poem now. Enjoy life with the life-giving wife. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. We're here all week. Um, then you expect... I, I, this feels like I'm making it so confusing and complicated. It's, I'm really trying not to. I'm sorry. You, you'd expect day six, life, life, life. Day seven, rest, rest, rest. 
you get life, 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 work, work, work. It's like, oh no, something's missing. Yes, because it's all vain. When does the day dawn when it's not in vain? Oh, 1 Corinthians 15, resurrection. Yeah, that's simpler, isn't it? Why didn't I think of that the first time around? All happy? Right, so now within that context, okay. Now we have a... We have two ways of appreciating the value of created things. We've got Solomon's way. It's just good. Created gift. And it's going to perish. But it's good. Enjoy it. And we've got Paul the Apostles and Jesus' way. It is going to perish and it will all be harvested again. It's the seed that will be sown that will become goodness in the renewed heavens and earth. Yes? So you can think of everything from those perspectives and they actually start to overlap. So now we go back to the other items on the list and we'll start to think, okay, in what sense do these things speak to us of created goodness? In what sense do they speak to us of resurrection life? Yeah? So, which one do you want to start with? You've got go, eat, drink, white garments, and oil. What do you want to start with, Uriah? White garments. All right, white garments. There's something odd about white garments. Um, Are you supposed to eat all the time? Are you supposed to drink all the time? What does it say in the text? Drink your wine with a merry heart. Do you want to drink wine all the time? No, no. Let your garments be always white. It's the only thing in that list you're told to do always. Why? What are white garments about? Thank you very much. You should definitely come to Bible study more often. Mrs. Olson, did you all hear that? The white linen in Revelation mm, 21, 22. Righteous acts of the saints. Let your garments be always white. So it's a picture of purity. It's a picture of the um, renewal of a person in Christ, who is the one wearing white linen in Revelation chapter 1. Yeah, thank you. Um, yes, Miss Duke. And then Paul again. Yes, I think it probably is. It's a picture of inward character. Remember that um, garments in Scripture in general talk about your in a state of mind, torn garments, sackcloth, mourning, festal garments, joyfulness. They also talk about your status, priests, special clothes. Yeah? Um, Joseph, special clothes because he's special son, because his father didn't understand that if you have a special son, it's going to cause trouble with the other 11 sons. So really, you shouldn't do that. Don't. Um, so yes, status, uh, function, uh, state of mind speaks of those things. Um, and in a broader biblical context, it speaks of the, the state of righteousness. Paula, pardon me, did you have your hand up a moment ago? Go ahead. Well, I think you said how 
Yes. 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 She's doing a beautiful thing. Yeah. Preparing for my burial. Yes. Did you all see? Can you, do you all hear what Mrs. Olson said? Did you pick up any of? Okay, so there are liturgical echoes here, almost in order, not quite. Um, go or eat, drink. Okay, eat and drink. Yes. Oil, a symbol in scripture of many things, but frequently it's used to depict the work of the Spirit in, in various ways. And again, we need to avoid these abstractions, but you see the connections. Oil is fuel for the lamp, and the lamp is the thing that manifests the presence of God, and the thing that burning bush is the presence of God, and the burning lampstand in the temple is the presence of God, and the Spirit burning on the heads of the disciples. That's, these are images of the Spirit. Well, the Spirit is the one who lifts us up to be with Christ when we lift up our hearts in worship. Bread and wine, obviously. Go. Not sure. But white garments, yes. Your ministers are clothed in white because we have no business. You know, Jeff and Jeff and Steve have no business declaring that your sins are forgiven. But only Jesus can do that. So when we're taking this distinctive role of speaking in the name of Jesus, that's when we robe up, so to speak, to hide ourselves behind the, the garments of the white-robed one in whose name we speak. Um, yeah, go ahead. Uh, no, the thought just occurred to me. Uh, always, when I've read that, that passage before, I, I admittedly never figured out that there were seven individual Yeah, that's interesting. It's like six things of rest and one thing of work. Maybe. Um, I'm not sure it's quite rest exactly, but, but let's just pursue this thought. If reading that, it reads almost like a Sunday fellowship. Right. right. I, I think this is taking us in the right direction. It's liturgical elements. It's obviously Lord's Supper elements. I mean, like bread and wine. Come on. I mean, that's just like so obvious that you're not even bothering to tell me. Um, yes, it, it's not quite rest, but it is creation as it ought to be right let me show you i think that's absolutely right look with me again um at verse uh, verse seven and I'll, I'll read it literally as it um as it reads if i recall it correctly and i'll tell you the bit that i am recording correctly go um with joy eat your bread and with a good heart drink your wine literally it's a good heart not merry there's a perfectly good word in Hebrew for joyful and merry. There are several words, but it's good. Now, why is it saying good 
in one of the six days, sorry, six commands that echo the six days of creation. Exactly. It's what, precisely, did you all hear that? It's what God said at the end, wait, see, ten times, yeah, ten times, um, not on the second day, weirdly. Peter Light, I'd explain that, and I can't remember what he said, but ten times, and then very good at the end of uh, Genesis 1. Um, so creation, as it's supposed to be, is good. Right. What's Ecclesiastes about? Ecclesiastes, chapter 7, verse 27 this is what happens when the good creation goes bad. God made man upright, but they've sought out many schemes. How do you restore the goodness of creation? Well, it's easy. You drink your wine with a good, that is, merry heart. So I think that this is supposed to be saying something like, one way to restore the world into something like it ought to be is a liturgical celebration of eating and drinking, like a sacrifices of Israel or our Lord's Supper, or just any regular celebration like Christmas or Thanksgiving or anything like that. that you're, that's how the world's supposed to be. And it's not just, oh, we're enjoying ourselves. It's this is our hearts, so to speak, the seat of our commitment reinstating how the world ought to be by joyfully celebrating God's goodness. Paula, sorry, yeah. Yeah, very creation-y. Yeah. And now he says, okay, go do stuff. Not yes. just run around the park and have a good time, but be fruitful and multiply and right, do right. the earth. And same thing. Yes, go, yes. Go in peace to serve the king. Yes, yes. And so it's like, okay, hooray, we just ate and drank and had a good time. Now we get to go. go. Get after it. Yeah, and I think that's exactly right. It, it means the first one, go, and the seventh one kind of echo each other. And it is like the creation mandate, isn't it? It's like um, be fruitful and multiply. Get on with the job with vigor and enthusiasm and so on. Um, I... I I wanted to say something about this because I wanted to pick up some of the things I said on Sunday. With three minutes to go, this is risky. But remember, I, So for those of you who are around on Sunday, I talked about the, the, the idol of our feelings and how focusing on our feelings in an effort to feel good is a road to nowhere and actually idolatrous and we're allowing our lives to be shaped by something that will destroy us. And of course, the, there's a, the danger to that is that we think, okay, great, stuff my feelings. And one or two people have been saying to Nicole or to me, we've been going around all week so far saying, stuff your feelings, just get on with the job. And like, and you think, well, where, where, where exactly do I focus my attention if I do want to find the fullness of joy for which I was created? And this is the answer. See, and I... Just, I was running out of time at the end on Sunday, so let me just say a, word, a couple of words about it now. I mentioned C.S. Lewis, didn't I? What he says about joy. Do you remember? Have you read Surprised by Joy? Hands up if you've read Surprised by Joy. 
You've all got to go and read Surprised by Joy. I can't find the quote in there for the life of me. Somebody find the quote where he says something like, I realized you couldn't, this is not what he said, but it, the gist of it was, you can't find joy by looking for joy. You find joy in being lost in the pursuit of other things. Good things that God has given you, being used according to their purpose. You can find joy in chopping wood. You can find joy in data entry into a spreadsheet. You can find joy in baking bread. You can find, I promise you, apparently, you can find joy in changing diapers. That, see, that's the thing to think about at 2.17 in the morning when the kids start screaming for the third time. Not, what about my feelings? Because if you look at your feelings at that point, most of you will think, really, I don't want to get out of bed. Where's my husband? But, but you're... By devoting yourself to the things that are put in front of you, you can find, you can lose yourself in the, the pursuit of those things and the enjoyment of those things. I was talking to one gentleman just a, a couple of weeks ago, and um, I don't know why I haven't mentioned this to you all before. You know that um, drinking a coffee is an act of worship. Just think for a second, think for a second. This is a gift of God, correct? You know that first sip taste that Starbucks is always talking about? First thing in the morning, and I was encouraging this gentleman. I said, look, wait, sit down with your Bible first thing in the morning. Get yourself a cup of coffee, put it on the table in front of you. And you all thank God for your food before you eat, don't you? Is prayer a prayer of thankfulness? Is that not an act of worship? It is, isn't it? And... In receiving this with thankfulness, are we not honoring the God who made it? And so you look at the, the, the inky black depths of that mug. And the, I don't know, if you like espresso, it'll have that kind of creamer on it, which kind of swirling pale brown, which is... Then it all kind of move to the edges if you stare at it for long enough, and it will never be seen again. Nobody's ever going to see that ever again. And you take that sip of that cup of coffee and you enjoy the goodness of the creator in the thing that he's given you because you're receiving it with thankfulness. That's how to find joy in the living God. You can't find joy in the living God by trying to find joy in the living God or by looking down into your heart to see if you're joyful. You probably won't be. But by throwing ourselves into and receiving with thankfulness the things that he's given us to enjoy and to do, we, we encounter the God who reveals himself to us in the things he's made. And one minute. In the background here, theologian types, is the relationship between special and general revelation. General revelation, God reveals himself in the created world. Special revelation, God reveals himself in scripture. Don't think of them as separate and unconnected. It's true that the sinful, blind heart of man cannot perceive God in the things he's made. The scriptures are given to illuminate us by the Spirit so that we can perceive God in the things that he's made. So we can understand history. So we can understand uh, what rocks and mountains and fire mean. So we can understand what the death of some 
temporarily famous Galilean preacher in 30-odd AD means so that we can understand what we're supposed to do with food. You're supposed to receive it with thankfulness as an act of gratitude to God. Special revelation tells you how to interpret general revelation. Can you see? We receive these things and in them we encounter the, the one who gives them to us. So that's the positive flip. No, that's a very, very short version of the positive flip side of what I, didn't, of what I said on Sunday. Don't be searching your heart to try and discover whether you're happy. You won't be. Almost guarantee it. But what are you called to do today? You've got responsibilities to do, to take on. And you've got gifts that you've been given. Here, there's a bunch of them. Eating and drinking and all the things that uh, white garments and oil symbolize. And those of you who are married and have families, those relationships and Whatever your hand finds to do, and all of you have something to do. This man's applied for a job cutting steel girders into smaller pieces as an act of worshipping the living God, correct? Right. And in those things, we will... This is going to sound melodramatic. we're, We're laughing in the face of death. Death stalks and confronts us in verses 1 to 6. And we're going to laugh in its face in verses 7 to 10. And we know even better because 1 Corinthians 15. It's not actually in vain anyway. Okay, we are way out of time. Three minutes past, quarter past, as usual. Um, I should lead us in prayer. We can stick around a little bit. Um, Go and give um, uh, Pastor Shaw a high five or a hug, whichever you prefer. And um, uh, we'll see him and his family here hopefully very soon. Let's pray together. Merciful Father, we're grateful to you for all these wonderful gifts you've blessed us with. and We ask that you would teach us to receive them with gratitude. And even as we navigate the frustration and confusion of life, confronting and confronted by death at every step, we ask that you'd equip us to do so wisely and joyfully, knowing that, yes, it's vain, because of the death that approaches us, and it's not in vain because of the resurrection. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, everybody. Have the rest of a great week. And um, I will see you next Wednesday, not around this Sunday. Pastor Neil, we'll see you on Sunday. Bye for now. If at some point we are able to set the chairs and tables out in the usual way, that'd be awesome. Thank you. Oh, look. Hold on. Let me just um, turn this off, otherwise your questions will get put on the website forever. Sorry, everybody. Should have come to Bible study. (laughs) 